Welcome, awesome admission professionals. This podcast is the Admissions Entrepreneur, a day in the life. I'm your host, Tom Skank, and I'm the founder of Dartmouth Associates. We are the creators of the results-oriented recruiting solution known as ROAR. ROAR is an enrollment intervention strategy that integrates entrepreneurial thinking and sales fundamentals to immediately help schools in crisis. We offer personal 360 consulting as well as affordable training products on the website. If you need help, please go to our website at dartmouthassociates.com. That's dartmouthassociates.com or email us at dartmouthassociates at gmail.com. That is dartmouthassociates at gmail.com. Today, we are bringing fun and insights to your profession. We have exciting people who share their unique life stories with you. We've got a lineup of fabulous guests, so please make sure to catch each episode. Now, let's get started. Barbara Egan has served as Director of Enrollment Management at Georgetown Day School since July 2014. In that time, she has steadily increased enrollment demand by focusing on expanding admissions outreach efforts, overseeing the development of effective ambassador programs, and fully digitizing admissions operations. Beyond the admission office, Barbara collaborates with colleagues on existing and new program initiatives and partners with the Board of Trustees on diversity and inclusion goals, finance, and enrollment planning. Beyond GDS, Barbara has served as a founding faculty member of the Future Leaders Institute at the Enrollment Management Association and on the Admissions Advisory Committee of the Association of Independent Schools in Greater Washington. She has previously worked at Polytechnic School in California and Groton School in Massachusetts and served as a board member at Oak Meadow School in Massachusetts. Along the way, also she is gaining experience as a student advisor, coach, and English teacher. Barbara received her A.B. in History and Literature from Harvard University, and her Master's in School Leadership from Harvard Graduate School of Education. Barbara lives in Washington, D.C., and cherishes her time with her wife, Rachel, a talented independent school leader in her own right, and their dog, Moxie. In July 2021, Barbara will take on a new capacity at GDS, as the founding executive director of a newly established enterprise, the Center for Civic Engagement, whose mission is to equip young people regionally and nationally with the skills to renew and sustain our democracy. Barbara, welcome. Thank you so much, Tom. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you, that's, a, that's an impressive list of accomplishments. I do wanna get back to your new position uh, which sounds beyond exciting and, and certainly very timely for what's going on Absolutely. in this world. Uh, but first, I just wanted to ask you the, the general question about what did you do to really improve the Office of Admissions when you arrived? What were some of the, the, key, the key initiatives that you put forth? Sure. So I arrived at GDS in the summer of 2014, I think, Nationally, we were still in the wake of the Great Recession from 2008. And the reason why that was important for us is that we're a pre-K through 12 school. And so like many schools regionally and nationally, we were experiencing a contraction in our lower school applicant pool. Um, but that was sort of offset by what we were seeing in uh, the growth of interest in especially high school at that time. Mm. So the first thing that was important for me to do was to get a sense of what's happening. You know, where can we look at some data to understand what's happening for us as a school in terms of who's applying and who's not? Um, where can we better understand what's happening regionally in our markets to see where we have some opportunities? 
Um, and then where can we identify some opportunities for, for growth and, and improvement of our operations, of our team structure, et cetera. So for me, my first year was very much about just gathering the data to know where to start. And beyond that, it was also then about, okay, now that we have a better sense of who's applying and who's not, what is successful about our admissions outreach and where we have opportunities to grow, how can we build better partners? And those partners were both external to the school in the form of various academic enrichment and access programs, uh, specific schools and other networks that were important for us to be a part of. Um, and then some of those partners were internal. Um, our biggest ambassadors by far are our kids. Um, when they are able to live and speak to the daily mission of the school, that sells this place more than anything. And so it was really important for us to figure out how do we create an effective student ambassador program that will give our kids the opportunity to uh, tell our story even more effectively than those of us who are paid to. Um, and then uh, the same is true for our parents. Um, our parents are our biggest champions when they are activated. And so yes. it was also important for us to develop a strong parent ambassador network that would connect us to their peer and social networks outside of the school and give us more opportunities to draw in the types of applicants who we needed to see. Um, so that form of outreach through those external and internal partnerships was really important for us. And the first three or four years of my time here were we're really about overseeing the building of those and strengthening our internal relationships with other offices in the school um, so that we could have our most effective ambassadors on the front lines for us throughout the course of this admissions process. Um, so that was, that was one piece. And then I think that the other piece of this was, I mean, we are now well into the 21st century. And so, yes, um, you know, it, it, it is kind of remarkable looking back now over five admission seasons where we have been fully digital that when I first got here, we were still dealing with paper files. Wow. And so there was one file per student and, you know, we would pass it around the admissions committee table, kind of like it's a round of blackjack. I and that was, that. Yeah. Um, I mean, we all remember those days, right? And it's, it's kind of shocking how recent they were. Um, but the amazing thing about technology in, in the school space is that it has diversified very rapidly and it's also become incredibly robust. So there were a number of different um, digital databases that we explored uh, to see which one would best fit our needs uh, that would allow us to capture leads and inquiries in our process that would allow us to communicate effectively with folks and really move them through the enrollment journey. Um, and so finding a tool that enabled us to do that and that had amazing data capabilities for us to understand what was happening in our own applicant pool, um, but also to get a sense of what's happening in the aggregate regionally, um, that was kind of a game changer for us and certainly was a game changer for our applicants. So, um, you know, like anything, there was a big learning curve, but the upside was so much greater than um, even the steep uh, value of that learning curve. And so after a year of really figuring some things out and adopting that growth mindset that we talk about so much for kids, um, you know, we got over that initial hump and were able to recognize how we could use this technology and this new capability. Um, to enable us to do our jobs even better. And so uh, being able to build on that strength um, has been um, huge for us. And then I would say the final piece has been thinking intentionally about who is doing what job. Um, you know, there are many different ways to structure an admissions team. And we've been through a couple of evolutions, even in my time here. And on the one hand, you know, there are certain roles that are somewhat standard that you need in an admissions office. Um, but what we did was to take the approach of thinking, uh, what are the things that we need to be able to do? And how do we create the roles that will enable us to do those things? And so for us, that was very much about creating a really dynamic, engaging on-campus experience because we found that once folks came on campus, they would fall in love with the school. And so we wanted every touch point on campus, whether it was a tour, an interview, an open house, um, to really reflect the very best of us. And so we designed a role around um, managing our ambassador program so that our parents and our students 
um, could be uh, the best advocates that they could be for folks when they were on campus. Um, and then the other capability that we really needed was um, the ability to market. And I've been here just long enough that I remember when marketing was sort of a dirty word and people didn't really want to talk about it because it felt like, you know, our product is, uh, you know, they're, they're young people. Like, how can we sort of commoditize um, the, the human value of this experience? But we now know and have a better understanding of marketing as an opportunity to tell us who we are and to tell other people who we are and what it is that we are trying to do. And uh, we've been able to develop, um, I think, a real alignment around that school-wide. And so there's less of, you know, you ask 10 people what GDS is about and they tell you 10 different things. Sure. Um, you sure. might hear a few different variations, but, you know, we've been able to really crystallize what, what those themes are. Um, that really capture what our value add is for the families who are exploring our school. Um, so those are a number of the things that took us some years to do, and they didn't all happen at once, obviously, um, but they have now put us in a position to really be able to build from some real strength as we move forward. Well, it sounds like you've been a busy, busy woman for a while, <laughs> and for it never sure. ends. <laughs> it, it does not stop. You know that, it does not stop. This episode is sponsored by School Connections. The idea is simple, affordable and meaningful venues for traditional boarding schools, therapeutic schools and domestic and international educational consultants to come together for informational and networking purposes. This process ultimately leads to the successful placing of students into the most compatible environments. School Connections workshops involve multiple individual meetings between educational consultants and admissions representatives from schools and programs. Their workshops range from two to three days and allow attendees to maximize their time with individual appointments in one workshop in one location. I know from experience, School Connections is a fantastic program. And if you are looking for students, please reach out to them at schoolconnections.org. That's schoolconnections.org. Let me drill down a little bit about uh, about when you talked about marketing and mm -hmm. because I know certainly back in the day, people would just find out about the school from family and friends and it would move that way. And then we got into the marketing. And then, of course, there was the era of big data, mm -hmm. uh, which is which is a component part of the whole process. But what do you. What do you do when you talk to your staff about marketing and the training you give them? Tell me a little bit about mm. the training, because I think that's always been a weakness in admission offices. You, you'll maybe give an overview to someone initially and then right. not much after that. Do you have a regular training regime that you do with your staff? So I would, that's a great question. I wouldn't call it a regular training regime. And, you know, I think one of the important things that has been important for, for us as a school is to define everybody's role in marketing. Mm -hmm. And so this has been when I give my annual presentations to our board or to our faculty, or when I meet with our parent service association, um, part of what I'm doing is sort of spelling out everybody's role in this marketing enterprise. Yes. And so for the board, you know, they are really there to uh, create a pathway for us to be the version of our mission that we are espousing to be. And they are our biggest advocates in that regard, in terms of uh, being clear for others, um, the values that really guide us as a school. Um, they also create the resources for our leadership team uh, to do the same thing. And so for our leadership our role is to really engage our team, our faculty, our families in um, really living the version of the mission that we have sold folks. Um, and for yes. us, that's very much about seeing kids, uh, meeting them where they are, creating opportunities for them to become whoever they are becoming and to go wherever they're going to go. And so the reinforcement of that time and again and reminding us what we're about as a community is the work that our leadership team is tasked with. Um, and then for our faculty, they play a critical role because mm. they are actually the daily stewards of the mission. They yeah. are the ones who are in the classroom creating the relationships with kids, creating that context in which kids have a sense of discovery, 
in which they're going to be stretched, um, in which they're going to be seen and known and supported as they're on this journey. And so through their relationships with students and with parents and reflecting back to parents, here's what we're doing in our classroom that is delivering on our mission every day. Um, they are really the linchpin. And so for us, that was a really crucial partnership to unlock um, over these past several years. Um, and then our kids are, you know, you know that you're doing it well when, you know, we have student panels at our open houses and we'll choose four or five kids. And I wouldn't say they're randomly chosen. We want to sure, make sure, sure that we have a representative group, um, but they are certainly not scripted. And there is just this, uh, I mean, I've gotten goosebumps at times, kind of listening to our kids be reflective about the value of the experiences that they've been able to have at our school. And so that's when you know when you're doing it right. When you don't even need to know, you don't need to tell the kids what to say, um, but they, they just begin to inhabit who you are as a school and are able to reflect on that um, so beautifully. So in a broad sense, you know, there's a sort of an education and a re-education every Absolutely. year for our community about the critical role and they play in that. Um, but for the individual on our team who does have a marketing specific role, um, there is professional development out there. I'm glad to see organizations like ASAP um, yeah. that have um, a really built out a much more explicit marketing focus than some other admissions um, uh, associations out there. And so those touch points and, and connecting to a community of other marketing folks and independent schools, that has been a big part of the professional development of the individual that we have on our office who's specifically tasked with this work. And, that, um, and that's crucial, absolutely. Uh, ASAP has a tremendous library on just about any topic mm -hmm. that someone would want. And once you're a member, there's, there's that easy access. So it's, it's great right. that you, you've, tap, you've tapped into that. Let me That's drill true. down just a little bit more about your staff organization and expectations. Mm -hmm. At the start of a week, how is your monitoring of what they do in the course of a week handled? Mm. So, you know, I think that this is a fascinating question because I would imagine that different leaders of different teams, you'll hear a bunch of different answers. Sure. Um, for us, you know, we have a team of seven. We are actually, this is our first year pre-K through 12 all on one campus. Mm. Um, we previously had two different campuses. And so I will tell you from a management perspective that has made it a little bit tough, um, you know, because you can't just have a team meeting without actually inconveniencing half of the team. Sure. Um, so up until now, we've had a much more sort of divisionally specific uh, sort of approach. And so that weekly check-in, it actually tends to happen at the end of the week for us. Okay. Um, if we have that Friday check-in, um, because it allows us to plan for the upcoming week, um, but it also allows us to debrief on what it was that just happened. So we have had a habit of having like a weekly office check-in, whether that's at our lower middle school or our high school. Um, at the end of each week, just to connect with one another and, and get ready for, for what's next. Um, I, this year, as we are on one campus, obviously it's been COVID time, so we haven't really cooped the full sure. benefits of that. Right. Um, but we are, we are looking forward to a little bit more cross-pollination. I mean, we're right across the street. And so we sure. actually have a team meeting this afternoon where we're going to all share the same space and it will be uh, pretty convenient for everyone and actually really wonderful to be able to have a few more people to bounce ideas off of. Um, and so really building that, that team culture, that's where I am right now um, for this team, particularly given that I'm gonna be stepping away in a couple months. And so I am deeply invested in ensuring that um, the team is set up for success and that we yes. have done the work that we need to do to optimize our working relationships. Um, so that the person who next steps into my seat is, is ready. Um, but I think that broadly, you know, I'm not a sort of daily operations manager, for better or for worse. And I think it's the type of thing that um, probably really depends on your context and your setting and the needs of your team. Um, but I am enormously lucky to have a team of professionals. I've got um, one person on my team who's She's been doing this work here at GDS longer than I've been alive. And, you know, you have to respect that, you know, you have to respect Absolutely. that. And so 
you know, we see a range of experience, including, um, you know, some folks who are much newer to our team within the past three years. And so as a manager, I feel like my job is to help folks understand what their jobs are and how they can be most effective in their jobs, um, in their working relationships with others on the team, beyond the team. And, and yet I really want each individual to have a sense of ownership and to Absolutely. feel as though, you know, you will know how to manage the flow of your day better than I can tell you. And so for me, that sort of management style, I mean, I think it takes a while for all of us to kind of get used to that because you kind of have to learn people, yes. have to learn, you know, where their strengths are, um, what really motivates them, uh, where their growth areas are. Um, and it's very sort of uh, relationally intensive. So I actually feel like much more of my management happens um, less at the sort of team check-in level, sure. um, but much more at the individual one-to-one um, which I have with each member of my team every week. Okay. All right. So that is part of your program. Yeah. I agree. I think everybody wants to feel as though they're appreciated individually mm-hmm. and to really get a sense of what motivates them. You know, what are their goals when they wake up in the morning as a human being and then moving on to whatever their professional direction is going to be. Yeah. Well, speaking of professional directions, you have been in this, crazy industry for a while. Um, (laughs) I guess, what is it that has kept you in it? And what would you feel are the skill sets, not now necessarily, but moving forward for the new person coming into this industry must have in order to be successful? So what has kept me in it is... um, you know, at a basic level, the opportunity to open doors. I, I have always been an admissions person who sees this work less as like a gatekeeping function where the job is to keep people out and more of a gate opening function and figuring out how do you draw the best mission fit kids and families to your school. And, um, you know, particularly at a school like GDS where uh, the diversity of our student body is, is meaningful, not just from a statistical standpoint, but it's historically meaningful to us as the first integrated school in Washington. How do we um, intentionally ensure that our outreach strategy is um, not just relying on on folks who have traditionally known about independent schools um, and that we actually have an active sort of extending of the hand to get the right folks here. And so for me, that has been a really gratifying endeavor. Um, to create those doors opening for other families um, and then to see the kind of community that you build over time when you've got folks who are buying into who you are as a school, um, who are here for the right reasons, who want to be contributors to the community and the values that are really core to us as an institution. Um, And that actually has this amazing opportunity to then become a magnet for the other kinds of families who you want to see more of. And so that has really kept me here. It has nourished and fed me. And I'm also someone who I I come to the work with a a sense of fascination as well about things like data and, you know, what can that tell us about what we're doing and what we can do better. Um, I come with a real um, perspective around um, the importance of creating points of access, particularly through financial aid. And so that has been um, perhaps actually the biggest part of my job in terms of job description mm-hmm. over the past seven years. Um, and so for me, that has been uh, an incredible ride. And so I think that one of the things moving forward for admissions professionals is um, recognizing that this profession has become actually a profession over the past 15 or 20 years. Yes. And that, um, you know, there are basic things that folks should understand about, you know, how an admissions and enrollment journey works. Um, But that we should also never confuse that for strategy. You know, at the end of the day, this will always be about connecting value to people and how you translate that in the course of your job and how you live out this role will look different for every enrollment director given the strategic direction of your school. Um, But if we can remember that it's actually ultimately about people 
and it's ultimately about the communities that we're building and um, you know the young people who are four years old now but you know they're going to be 35 one day and we want to be creating a pathway for them that they can be the kinds of young adults who are well adjusted and and are um, ethical leaders in their community um, and so um, I come to this work as well like a little bit philosophically and you know I like targets and numbers and goals and setting projections but you know that's that's in fact not the job, even though the, those are absolutely, I think the baseline skills required uh, to do the job well. Let me, let me ask you about an issue that comes up periodically. And I understand having been in the field a number of years myself, that you first of all have to love education. You have to love what it does to change people's lives. Uh, so there's a there's, there's a passion that has to be underlying, I believe. Yeah. yeah. Talk to me about your feelings regarding the topics of commission and bonuses for admissions <laughs> people. Uh, because as some people have said, this is, your, you know, yes, you're teachers on one level, but you're, you've got very specific quotas. So how do you, how do you uh, answer that? Yeah, you know, I think, this is where I would say, and, and this is an adage that's been around for at least a couple decades, um, you know, that, that schools are like businesses. Um, and what I would emphasize is that schools are like businesses. You know, there is certainly an element to the bottom line uh, in an independent school setting that is unavoidable. And yet, um, we are not profit-making enterprises you know, and at the best of things, we're just trying to break even. And so I, I think it's really under, uh, important um, to sort of understand the context in which we are trying to do this work. I think that the other thing, I mean, I, I feel a, in a couple of minds around this, to be honest with you, Tom. So on the one hand, I, I think I saw perhaps in an EMA survey some years ago that um, basically, the higher the salary for the enrollment director, the more likely they are to meet their enrollment target. And, you know, there's a lot in that. I don't necessarily know that it's causality, but that was kind of interesting to note. Yes. Um, you know, I, I think there's also the reality that um, if you're overseeing admissions and enrollment, depending on your school, that's 80 to 90% of the school revenue that you are responsible for. Yes. And so what we typically see in the hierarchy of salary scales in independent schools is of course you've got the head of school and then you know there's the development director who you know yes. might be raising a couple million dollars a year in a healthy sized school. Um, but the enrollment director might be pulling in $40 million of revenue a year. Yes. And so how do you yes. sort of justify um, those sort of salary disparities that we tend to see. So I certainly think that there is an opportunity to address what I think is a disparity in terms of the, uh, the value that the enrollment director is bringing to the institution yes. and how that's reflected in compensation. So I believe that. Um, but I also believe that in a school setting, which is such a human relational enterprise, um, where the product is, you know, we're talking about young human lives here, um, I, I think that the notion of introducing um, incentive-based pay or anything that sort of introduces the notion of competition in a school setting is not the best thing culturally for a school. Um, and, you know, we are actually in the middle of doing a, a compensation audit here to better understand how mm. our compensation scale and the different types of compensation can better address the needs of our faculty. Um, but one of the things that has come through loud and clear, and I don't think that GDS is unique in this regard, is that uh, the notion that somehow we're gonna introduce a competitive element to performance mm. and reflect that in a pay scale, it, it, it's not who we are and it's not who we want to be. And so um, that's what I would say to that question. I do think that enrollment directors should be paid more. Um, and I think that um, living within the norms of, of the nonprofit human relational enterprise that is a school is, is important as well. 
Well, thank you. That I really appreciate your articulate answer. And I, as someone who has been a director of admission as well as a director of development, uh, where I made more money, mm-hmm. uh, I, I can tell you I found raising money a lot easier than running an admission office. <laughs> there, there are just too many. There's far more moving parts as far as I saw it. Yeah. Um, and so I think that that's something that really needs to be to be talked about. Mm-hmm. Um, getting back to your issue of who's who's bringing in the most money, bottom <laughs> line. Uh, so I so I hope in, in in what GDS is doing that'll that'll bring some kind of equity. Um, that's our goal. That's yeah. our goal, um, and frankly, also some transparency. Um, because yes. it's, it's not always clear how years of experience or having advanced degrees will factor into our pay. Um, and it's also becoming increasingly clear that there are some real generational differences in how people want to see their work rewarded um, for any number of reasons that have to do with um, actual values to um, different financial stressors. So, We'll see, we'll see what the outcome is, but we think it's gonna be a more equitable compensation schema. I, I'm excited to hear you say that. I, I have a concern uh, getting back to compensation is this role is becoming more and more difficult. I think everybody would, would agree with that. And we have to have processes in place where we can continue to attract the best and the brightest. Yeah. Um, and, I'd love to see an actual college degree program. I mean, there's there's bits and pieces. ASAP has a certificate. UCLA mm-hmm. has a, a program of certificate, but not an actual degree program. But when you look at the intricacies of the profession, it makes perfect sense. Yeah, it absolutely does. This episode is sponsored by the Independent Educational Consultants Association. It is the largest and most respected organization representing independent educational consultants. An IECA member educational consultant is a skilled professional who provides counseling to help students and families choose a school that is a good personal match, one that will foster the student's academic and social growth. IECA members adhere to the strictest ethical ethical standards in the profession, visit hundreds of campuses each year, and are among the most experienced educational consultants in the profession. They focus on finding the best match between student and school. Many schools have gained students from new communities because of their outreach to IECA members. Personally, I was a director of admissions for 20 years, and the IECA consultants were crucial in helping me find the best mission-appropriate students. They are fantastic people to work with. In fact, national and regional media, as well as government agencies, rely on IECA as the authority of the profession. IECA is consistently cited by the media as the association with ethical, student-centered advising. For more information on how to connect with IECA members, go to iecaonline.com. That's iecaonline.com. I'm very excited to hear a little bit about your new position. Um, I'd love to, uh, you know, I'd love to hear how you are approaching this because you're the founding executive director. Um, What are some of the challenges? What's your overall approach at this point as you look forward? Sure. So the Center for Civic Engagement at Georgetown Day School, this is really born from Um, our head of school's vision. He's been formulating this for a couple of years, thinking about where does GDS have the opportunity to um, express its mission next. Mm -hmm. And we have been a school here in DC, we've we've sort of been at the intersection of education and democratic engagement since our founding. Um, I mentioned earlier that we were the first racially integrated school in Washington. And that has been and remains a really core part of what we believe as a school, which is that um, we need, if we're claiming to prepare kids for the world out there, we need to have a school community that reflects the diversity of the world out there, our backgrounds, experiences, et cetera. 
And so um, we have a lot of programs in which our kids have proven uh, incredibly astute uh, at recognizing when they look out at the world beyond our walls, where there are opportunities for our communities to be more equitable, um, where we have opportunities to work in better partnership with community organizations. And so, you know, I think the most robust version of this is our Summer Policy and Advocacy Institute, in which it's a five-week student intensive where kids are connecting with experts at nonprofits and the public policy space around issues ranging from immigration policy to gun rights to affordable housing and living wage here in DC. Um, and then part of actually creating some policy oriented solutions to those challenges and learning what those skills are. And so for us, the creation of the Center for Civic Engagement is really born of um, a, a moment that we're in. And you know, anybody can look around at the past few years, past few months and recognize that there are some basic tenets of our democracy that we've taken for granted uh, mm -hmm. that we can no longer take for granted. And so what does it mean to educate the next generation and really equip them with the skills to engage in better dialogue across our political and our ideological differences, um, to think about where we have the opportunity to create better equity and outcomes, whether it's related to housing or healthcare or education, um, where we have opportunities to bring partners to the table with us. And so the Center for Civic Engagement is what we are hoping is um, a public and private partnership space. And we want to engage with um, various organizations in our community, uh, beyond this DC region as well, um, to create programming for students to develop some of these skills mm -hmm. uh, of better dialogue, um, better public policy engagement, um, better leadership with an equity lens, um, and an eye to think about how do we solve problems together. So uh, that's what the center is all about. And I'm incredibly honored to be the one sort of bringing this, this vision to life. And so right now we are in startup mode and you know that is both fun and frantic in all the ways that you would imagine. Um, but I'm really thinking about, um, first of all, for a student focus program, how do we bring student voice into this process of creation? And um, how do we build, um, I, you know, what I would call maybe a systemic stamina, you know, not just sort of chasing after one thing and then another thing, but really kind of laying some roots and, and, and building towards progress in some meaningful areas. So it's incredibly fun. Um, I'm, I feel lucky that I get to stay at an institution that I've loved since day one. And it also feels like the just the most vital work to be doing right now um, for our democracy. So I'm incredibly excited about it. Watch this space is what I would say. There's much more to come. <laughs> I can tell, and I can tell by your enthusiasm and, and how timely, how, abs yeah. how absolutely timely. Clearly you are a, a thought leader um, through your background, your passion. What is it as a leader that you do to create a, a positive life through your personal life and professional life, how do you how do you pack it all in, and and stay <laughs> stay sane and happy? Oh my gosh, that is a great question, and I I think I've only gotten a little bit better with it. It's taken a little bit of help. So you know, having a life outside of work that now includes my wife and my dog, um, and you know the family that we're hoping to build <laughs> that that's that's really meaningful, and for me has been. An important shift. So, you know, I'm somebody whose career has always been sort of the central theme of my life. And I'm actually excited for that to shift and, you know, recognize that I, I'm fiercely devoted to purposeful work. And then it's also important to leave work and be fiercely devoted to my life at home. And that has taken some discipline. And whether that discipline is, um, knowing that after a certain hour, I'm not going to be, if I'm reading emails, I certainly won't be sending emails. And I say this to my team as a way of sort of some public accountability. Like I will never, I will never send you an email after 7 p.m. about something for the next day. 
And it, if it really is an emergency, I'll text you. If it's that sort of thing where we need to be quickly responsive with one another. And so drawing those kinds of boundaries for myself has been hugely important. And um, I also encourage the folks around me to draw those boundaries and to find ways to feed their personal lives that have nothing to do with work. That's what really kind of nourishes us and refreshes us and allows us to come in every day and, and do our very best work. Um, and so for me, I, I cherish that time. I also, uh, I create time to exercise. And so, you know, a few mornings a week, uh, to be able to go for a run and take some deep breaths with some fresh yes, air before yes. I dive into my day is um, it's just incredibly valuable to me. And so I don't give that up for other things or schedule things over it. Um, so it's really been about um, drawing the boundaries of the life that I want to have and the obligations that I have in it and recognizing where they fit recognizing sometimes things are going to fall a little bit lower on the priority rung and sure. living with that, you know, the perfectionist learning to live with a little <laughs> bit of imperfection or, you know, a couple of un, untied loose ends at times is um, it's actually an important discipline to recognize because the truth is the sun comes up every day anyway, regardless right. of how worried I am about what's going to happen. So um, it's been a, a real exercise in trying to, figure out the perspective of my life yeah somebody once said life life is what happens while we're planning for life <laughs> exactly <laughs> exactly like this is it yeah this is the this is the deal now are you a yeah. journaler or are you a meditator as well uh so i i'm more of a meditator than a journaler although being in this process of creating something new with the center for example I'm actually journaling and writing a lot um, because part of this is about my sort of leadership articulation and the, the things that I want to get in the habit of thinking or looking out for as I am building. So, you know, it has become much more of a practice to me right now. But uh, meditation, it, it saved my life, you know, some seven, eight years ago when I was at a point, a, a real kind of crossroads in my career and my life. And I wasn't really sure um, if I was really anchored to anything and where any of this was all going. And um, being able to center myself through meditation was a big part of what enabled me to get through what was a pretty challenging time and refine a sense of purpose. Um, so in fact, I actually have a tattoo of my very first meditation mantra it was a healing mantra wow and it was gratitude love laughter joy so uh that was the mantra that really got it got me through some tough times well everybody who is successful seems to have an an articulated strategy it's it doesn't happen uh, by happenstance there's there's mm -hmm. a plan um and being successful also means overcoming things. And you mentioned that there was a point in your life um, are you, that really was tough. Are, are you able to articulate that a little bit in terms of where were you, why were you, and, and how did you grow from it? So, yes, I was, I had just graduated from graduate school. Um, so I'd gotten my master's in education, which of course meant I was committed to this as a, as a career path, as an educator. Um, but I had no idea what I wanted to do uh, after my master's program, which I, was very different from the other folks I was in a program with who were very clear that, you know, I want to be a principal, I want to be a superintendent. Uh, and so I spent some period of time um, not really certain, you know, do I want to stay in independent school? Um, do I feel like that's actually part of the problem, uh, you know, sort of widening these divides of the haves and the have-nots. And I, I decided briefly that I wanted to leave the profession. I left the East Coast. I actually mm. had that, that, that since I had at Polytechnic School was, was just one year in a different role. I was the director of community outreach there. Mm. And it was an important experience for me to have. Um, but it was also one that I, I knew it wasn't my path at that point in time, whether it was that I felt like I had left my whole life on the East Coast 
or I felt that, wow, I really had this opportunity to build on some of the experience that I had developed professionally. And so perhaps I actually wanted to be uh, back in the admissions and enrollment world. So I was trying to figure some things out. But I think that really at the core of it, I certainly have had some element of that imposter syndrome since I was in college. And, you know, do I deserve to be here? Am I even worthy of the privilege? And, you know, in some ways, kind of looking at my track record, maybe not. But, you know, in other ways, I think that um, the questions and the sort of the self-doubt early in my career kind of served me well, you know, um, they kind of spurred me to uh, do more than I had ever thought that I would be able to accomplish. Um, I realized that, in fact, I was quite an industrious person and you know, <laughs> not the sort of undeserving slacker that I had sort of mentally made myself out to be surrounded by all these brilliant people at Harvard. And at least early in my career, it created a sort of fuel. Um, but at a certain point, that imposter syndrome started to really kind of drag me down. And it was the reason why I was having all of these self-doubts and, you know, where do I want to be and how will I be my best self? And, and you know, I just kind of had to come to a point of realization. Um, that was the year I started meditating. Uh, that, in fact, who I was and the experiences that I had and the values that had led me to that point um, were actually... They, they put me in a position of strength that if I could recognize that, that was a position of strength, I would have the opportunity to build on that. And I um, was able to sort of initially felt like, you know, faking it till I made it. Um, but eventually it became um, a, a sense of belief in my skill set, my preparation for what I'm doing now, my intentionality and, and sense of purpose around what I want to be doing next. And I developed a self-belief that I had kind of been afraid to have um, or didn't feel like I was entitled to be able to have. So that was a big part of my personal development and my professional development and realizing I could trust my instincts and, you know, other people would tell me that I was qualified for something and I would try to talk them out of it. And, and I got to the point where I was like, why am I trying to talk people out of telling me how great I am? Maybe... I should like believe them and not believe them to the point where I get a big head about it, but believe them like enough that I can hear from somebody who I know and trust who knows me well and believe that I can be the great thing that they see in me too. So um, it, it is still there, this, the, the sort of the questioning and am I blank enough? Am I good enough? Am I um, an effective enough leader? Um, it is still there, but I try to, sort of catch myself before it drags me down and um, remind myself that there's a lot that got me here. And so how do I build with that? Well, being a leader uh, certainly entails a lot of self-introspection. And clearly you have, uh, you've, done a, you've done a lot of that. And it seems like they're very fortunate to be able to have you in this new position coming up. Um, I, I feel lucky. So I, I hope others are feeling great about it too. Now I'm going to ask you some deeper questions, but before we get into that, this episode is brought to you by ISCA. Does your board chair know about ISCA, the Independent School Chairpersons Association? The mission of ISCA is to support independent school board chairs in becoming effective governance leaders for their boards. ISCA accomplishes this by offering peer support and networking resources and educational opportunities. Get your board chair connected to ISCA today by visiting iscachairs.org. That's I-S-C-A-C-H-A-I-R-S dot org. I-S-C-A-C-H-A-I-R-S dot org. Talk to us a little bit about, for the listeners, what do you like to do? I mean, is it, do you like cooking? Do you like travel? What are your guilty pleasures? Um, yeah, I, I, Absolutely. I love cooking. So that works out because my wife and I also love eating. So you know, <laughs> they go hand in hand. They, they sure do. And I'm, I'm, I come from a, a family of great cooks. And so that, that's just so joyful for me. There's a, there's a Zen element to it. I love, um, 
you know, you can taste the love and food. And so that that's certainly a hobby of mine. Um, you know, I, I have a lot of sort of introspective types of activities, you know, I mean, left my own devices, I'm like very content to kind of go for a run and meditate and read and, and cook, you know, so it's helpful to have somebody in my life who's like, actually, we need to see other people and socialize, <laughs> and, you know, be part of the world. So um, we, when we have the chance, you know, we, we love seeing live music. We miss that. It's been so long since we've had the chance to um, just experience that sort of electric atmosphere. One of the very last activities that we did right before everything shut down was um, see a, an amazing performance at the Kennedy Center. And so uh, that's something that we, we love to do. And travel has been something that, uh, that we've loved as well. We're looking forward to getting back in, in, in that groove when the time is right and it feels safe enough. Where do you want to go? Any, any countries or so, destinations? You know, yeah, we, we had an annual tradition. It was becoming a tradition until last year of um, spending our spring break in Mexico, in Puerto oh. Vallarta. Oh, nice. And it is just kind of magical down there. I, I love I love the West Coast. I love seeing the sunsets over the ocean type of thing. Um, the food is incredible. The people are kind. I love the heat. So that's probably going to be first on our list to get back to. I think, I think there are a lot of people who cannot wait to just rip those masks off and, and go somewhere. <laughs> Exactly. I know. One day. One day. Yeah. Well, we're, we're on the path, to be sure. Yeah. Yeah. So you've had a lot of deep thoughts and considered a lot of issues in your life. As you sit here today, are there any particular topics that you feel are absolutely the biggest challenges in our society today that need our attention? Mm. The biggest challenge, and this is one of the reasons why I'm so glad this is such a point of focus for our Center for Civic Engagement. The biggest challenge is that we have lost the ability to talk to each other as a country. Um, we live largely ideologically segregated lives right now. And so, you know, the number of folks who will you know, get to high school, get to college, and, you know, have not met someone whether it's from a different religion or from a different race or even a different political party, um, which is absolutely an issue that we have here in D.C. and especially at a, a, I would say, a fairly liberal school like GDS. I mean, we have kids who their college roommate is the first Republican they've ever met. And, you know, that that is is not great preparation for, uh, you know, sustaining our democratic ideals where yes. we can find common purpose and actually think about um, all of us and not just some parts of us. So for me, you know, when I look at our, our news ecosystem and the fact that we all get our news and our information from different sources that only just reinforce what we think, when we look at how easily rampant misinformation can spread uh, across the country just so rampantly, um, and enforce these really deeply held beliefs that are not tethered to a shared reality, um, that's incredibly dangerous. And, you know, we have seen the effects of that. And I'm not even talking about, you know, one political party and, and over another or whose supporters or what, but we have seen the damage of, of not being able to see other people. Um, you know, January 6th is just one example, but I think that uh, last summer when the country was exploding in protests across this country, um, because it, it does appear to some that Black lives don't matter, that, um, you know, we need to reconnect with this ability to understand the experience of, of other people and to recognize that we have the privilege of living in a pluralistic society that is um, you know, the democratic hope of the world. And so for me, I think that um, finding some space to not all become centrists who believe the same thing, um, but to find some central space where 
we can be honest with one another about why it is that we've come to believe the things that we deeply hold as beliefs and not be trying to convince somebody um, or not be trying to um, you know, form alliances and figure out who our enemies are, um, but really for the purpose of better understanding others is a place to start. And it's the place where I think we have the most work to do as a country right now. Well, those are, those are profound words, Barbara, and you're absolutely right. I think we are far more alike each other than we are different if we take yeah. the time to listen and talk. Yeah, we can, we can understand those things. Let me ask you, as someone who's got a lot of deep thoughts and, and strong feelings about life, if you were to create a billboard on the freeway of life, the world's, the world's freeway, what would you like that billboard to say? What message would you like to put forth? I love that. Um, well, this is the best advice I've ever been given, and it's the advice that I always give, which is be relentlessly optimistic. And for me, it's really about leaning into each one of those words, you know, on, on the very base level is B, you know, and I think that so many of us live lives of doing that we just kind of forget that we are human beings, not human doings. And so I think that for me, that's about being present. It's about um, being able to give the most of ourselves to each moment, to each person, each, each encounter that we have. And so be, and as long as you're doing that, be it relentlessly and, you know, not taking, uh, I, I, I don't believe necessarily in naps. I, I'm not a great napper. Um, and I know that they're great for some people, but for me, it's just, is you know, I, I have like the most lucid dreams um, and hallucinations that feel like they're happening right in front of me. And so for me, I am very much about um, just creating a space to be really relentless with um, my sense of purpose, my drive, what it is I'm trying to do, um, constantly sort of trying to push the edges of my own limits, of my own competence. Um, and I think that that's what enables us to grow and be better. Um, and then as long as you're being relentlessly, I think you might as well be optimistic um, because if we have the opportunity to create um, what we hope for, um, what we think needs to be there um, in order to make things better. I, I think we, we often are able to rise to the, to the level of those challenges. And so um, that's what I would put on the billboard. Be relentlessly optimistic. I love that. You know, I talk to a lot of successful people on this podcast and they are very positive uh, their motivations, uh, I was talking to Bethany DiNapoli, who is the executive director. Do you know, I don't know if you know her or not, but her association works with uh, board chairs mm -hmm. and, and her driving force in her life is joy. Mm -hmm. um, but it's all positive. Like you said, relentless optimism, joy. Uh, another word that comes up with successful people that I've spoken with is mentorship you know connecting mm -hmm. with other other positive people yeah. but, it's a, but it's all a plan and it's all a positive plan so everybody uh in your position or thought leaders have plans but there's a there's a sense of hope mm -hmm. there's a sense of hope uh being the self uh perpetuated learner always but there's always something to stimulate us around the corner. Um, you're an impressive person, and I really appreciate you spending some time with myself and our listeners. Let me uh, just ask you, is there anything else you'd like to say um, about really anything that you feel people should know about either you or your thoughts that you haven't articulated yet? Um, you know, I, first of all, Tom, thank you. I'm just really flattered by this opportunity and I was grateful for the invitation and, and I hope that anything I've said kind of spurs something for someone out there. 
I, I think what I would leave with, and this is related to the hopefulness we were just talking about. I do believe that leadership is all about hope. It's all about, you know, how do we get better is, is basically what leaders are trying to figure out. Um, and when I think about what it is that feeds me and what I look out at the world and think would make the world an even better place, um, I, I think a lot about how easy it is to kind of fall into a way of thinking that's like, okay, how does this, in, how does this impact me? What's, the, what's in it for me? What am I going to get out of it? And if we are able to think instead about how do we center others and how do we think about how we want to enter a space, how we want to lead the interactions we have with folks, I, I'm all about positivity begetting positivity and then great things will happen. Um, so I just wanna leave on that note because I, I think that for me, that's what kind of lights me up as a leader is the yeah. opportunity to, um, to think about how what I am doing will make things better for others and how I can work in partnership to reach common goals with other people. And you can apply that to a wide range of endeavors in your professional life, in your personal life. Um, so I'll just leave folks with that in case it's as inspiring to others as, as it is to me. Well, thank you. You're certainly one of these people who makes, a, makes the world a better place because you're here. So thank you. I, I appreciate that. Thank you, Tom. And what you're doing is incredibly important. I love, um, I love the storytelling around leadership. I think it's great for leaders as well as for listeners and aspiring leaders. Um, and I think that any chance to reflect on what we do and, and how we got here and where we're hoping to go is a great opportunity. So I just thank you as well for your continued contribution to our profession. Well, it, uh, it's been part of my life, most of my life. You know, I was a third generation educator. I think I told you about my mother raising seven of us and uh, going through 12, 14 hour days in education, but it's uh, but admissions is a tremendous profession. And that's really one of the purposes of this podcast is to elevate and exalt what everyone does because it's a very special, unique role. Yeah, and, I, and thank you for taking uh, your time out of your busy day. And I look forward to doing this again sometime. I would love to be back. That would be fabulous. Enjoy your day. Stay safe. And let's stay in touch, please. I look forward to it. Thanks, Tom. That's all for today's exciting episode of the Admissions Entrepreneur, A Day in the Life, with me, your host, Tom Skank, founder of Dartmouth Associates and creator of the Results-Oriented Recruiting Solution, otherwise known as ROAR. Again, we've been treated to more fascinating stories by our guests. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast on iTunes so you'll never miss an episode and share the podcast link with your friends and colleagues. Also, stop by our website at dartmouthassociates.com. That's dartmouthassociates.com to review show notes. Thank you for listening. And until next week, have a terrific day and please stay safe. This episode is brought to you by Winner Marketing. They are a global company that actually understands independent schools. I know, as their advisor, I bring 30 years of educational success, both as a head of school and director of admissions. They don't try to squeeze you into a campaign template that doesn't fit your educational needs. Instead, they first listen carefully to your concerns and develop a creative solution just for you. They understand the increasing competition in the marketplace and aggressively pursue a comprehensive campaign to elevate the school brand to your target market. Their precise approach guides potential families from awareness to inquiry and to finally enroll. They use world-class methods to raise credibility and rankings by featuring you in top-tier press campaigns and optimizing your Google rankings with dynamic content. Additionally, they create press releases, funnel and ad campaigns, SMS and email nurturing. Also, they enhance domain authority, create backlink strategies, and engage top-tier retainers to get you 
featured in platinum publications such as Forbes and Business Insider. They will also create a podcast branding tour to exponentially increase your exposure. They've got the skills to help small nonprofits to multi-million dollar corporations. Contact them now. They can save your school. You can reach them at their website, which is winner, W-Y-N-N-E-R, marketing.com. That's winner marketing, W-Y-N-N-E-R, marketing.com. Or reach them via email at info at wintermarketing.com. That's I-N-F-O at winner, W-Y-N-N-E-R, marketing.com. This episode is sponsored by the NinjaGram app. Let's talk about automating your social media with the NinjaGram app over at www.ninjagram.app. This Instagram software will help you automate and grow your Instagram following fast by using their auto follow, auto unfollow, auto comment, auto like, and auto story views feature, and much more. Get over to www.ninjagram.app dot app today to purchase and download the ninjagram app at www.ninja n-i-n-j-a-g-r-a-m dot app and start growing your instagram following fast today also i want to give a shout out to my producers over at hype music network and jwattproduction.com these guys produce all my episodes and i trust no one else to bring the quality performance i demand every time if you need help with your first podcast they will take you by the hand and guide you through the whole process visit them at hypemusicnetwork.com that's h-y-p-e-m-u-s-i-c-n-e-t-w-o-r-k.com and at jwattproduction.com that's J-A-Y-W-A-T-P-R-O-D-U-C-T-I-O-N.com. You will not be disappointed.